Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. We're going to be looking again at verses 19 through 31. Now, don't scoff at me for saying again, right? One of my favorite preachers, Martin Lloyd-Jones, liked to preach on single words or two words at a time, okay? It took him forever to get through the first eight chapters of Acts. I've been doing much, much better than him. So be thankful for that as we come to this text yet again this morning for a second time. What we're going to do here is we're going to pick up where we left off last week with part two as we seek to identify true gospel fruit in our lives. How do we measure our life in Christ? We're seeking to answer that question, okay, so now what? Right? God has done this work in my heart. I am now a follower of Christ, and so now what? What, what does it mean to live for Christ's name? And, and, and we're not thinking just in terms of individuals, which is often what we do. Like, how does Chet live for Jesus? And then, you know, how does Joel over there live for Jesus? But also corporately, how do we live our lives together for the glory of his name as we are on mission together for Christ? And to do that, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the effects that the gospel had on the apostle Paul, how his conversion changed him and impacted others, both inside the church and outside the church. Now, you might be thinking, (laughs) well, why Paul? That's not really fair. I mean, Paul is Paul. Like his, his conversion was so dramatic. He, he was called by Jesus himself to be an apostle. Paul was used by God to help write the Bible. Paul performed miracles. Paul was hardcore. He suffered. He was imprisoned. He even died as a martyr for his faith in Christ. That's not me. Well, if I wanted to show my kids what it means to bear fruit, would I take them to a dead tree? Would I take them to a tree that maybe had one or two apples there growing on it? Would I take them to a tree that maybe it had fruit on it, but that fruit was sour or was bitter or was rotting or that tree was pest infested? No, if I want to show my kids what it means to bear fruit, I take them to a healthy tree that is bearing much fruit. And friends, that is what God is doing for us this morning in this passage and throughout the book of Acts. He is taking us to healthy trees and saying, look, this is what it looks like for the gospel to bear fruit in your life. This is what it looks like for the gospel to bear fruit inside the church and among those outside the church, among those who hate the gospel and among those who have come to love the gospel. And all of this is meant to serve the mission of Christ as we bear witness, not just in words, not just with occasional thoughts or or an hour here and there on a Sunday morning as we gather together, but with our very lives as we live for the glory of his name. Friends, the name of Christ is not glorified where there is no transformation in our lives. The name of Christ is not glorified where the gospel is not being proclaimed, where the church is not united together, where we live and we look just like the world around us because we live as as friends with the world and, and it's still in enmity with God. 
or where there's no apparent gospel growth inwardly and outwardly. So just like last week, the main idea is the same. The mission of Christ is fulfilled as the gospel bears fruit in our lives. And so as we come yet again to God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word, may we pray that the gospel will indeed bear fruit in our lives. And so let's read the text together. Acts chapter 9, beginning in the second half of verse 19. It says, For some days he, that is Saul, who would later be renamed Paul, was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of all those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night, led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus." So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The fruit of the gospel in the individual and in the corporate lives of true converts to Christ can be seen in gospel proclamation, in gospel enemies, in gospel unity, and in gospel growth. Now last week we dealt with the first two, gospel enemies and gospel growth. We saw the fruit of the gospel being made evident as we proclaim the gospel. Just like with Saul, with the church throughout the book of Acts, the gospel and its inward fruit as this does this work in our hearts will lead to outward proclamation for all who call upon Christ's name. And this proclamation is not occasional. It's not event-driven. It's not only when we sort of kind of feel in the mood, but it's a way of life. This is, as we sing and as we love and as we find joy in Christ, as we share the hope that we now have in him, and we do this according to the grace and strength that God supplies. This proclamation we saw was corporate as it's used to build up the body of Christ. We saw that this proclamation was immediate and ongoing. It wasn't just like you had to get an MDiv or reach a certain spiritual plane before you could start talking about Jesus, but you start talking about Jesus and this hope you have as soon as you come to Christ and throughout your lives. And we saw that this proclamation was bold towards outsiders. And this gospel proclamation that is our way of life it will lead to gospel enemies. 
Not that all non-Christians will actively persecute us, but if we're faithful, some will. It might look different for some people than others. Others will still live as enemies of God and yet remain apathetic or indifferent towards the gospel, but some gospel enemies, like Saul, will be dramatically saved by the grace of God through this gospel that we proclaimed. And so we live in the reality that the gospel that we proclaim offends and we are to adorn and proclaim this gospel faithfully as we seek to give no offense to our enemies, but to love and to pray for them. And in so doing, the mission of Christ is fulfilled and the gospel bears fruit in our lives. Now that is a summation of what we covered last week. This week, we're going to cover the second two points, all right? Gospel unity and gospel growth. Now, we like the idea of gospel unity and gospel growth as long as it doesn't cost us anything, right? Like, I really like garden produce. I just really hate gardening. That's a lot of work to sow seeds and to tend it and to weed it and to water it and to wait and to repeat that like a dozen times to get like a few sickly tomatoes at the end of it all. It just doesn't seem worth it to me. My son plays baseball. I'm an assistant coach. I love winning. I just don't like training. I don't like practicing. I don't like listening to the coach. I don't like working together with my teammates. I don't like running the risk of, of committing errors or striking out or, or maybe having to lose a game here and there in order to grow into a championship team. No, I want to live in the magical world of Disney, right? Where with the wave of a magic wand, your dreams can come true. It can happen to you and it can do it in the course of a 30-minute episode. That's what I want. But friends, unity and growth do not come easy, but unity and growth do come through the gospel. I want you to think about the context here. So often we read this passage and we just read it too fast and we don't really think very carefully about what's going on here. And if we do that, we just miss what's really, really happening. I mean, God, yes, had just done this miraculous work in the life of Saul. Something like scales had fallen off of his eyes so that now this once persecutor, blasphemer, and insolent opponent of the gospel has now been given eyes to see, not just physically, but spiritually, as he is now able to behold the glory of Christ. He sees the truth and beauty of Jesus. In the blink of an eye, God had miraculously changed him. And so, Saul's life was a fairy tale from that point forward, right? Just everything was great, fantastic. Certainly not. I mean, think about it. It took a divine nudging through a vision and through assurance from the very voice of the risen Lord Jesus himself for Ananias to go to that street called Straight to the house of Judas to find a man from Tarsus named Saul who would be praying for him to even consider that such a man who had done such evil against the church at Jerusalem and who had the authority to bind any who call upon the name of Christ could ever be trusted. I mean, think about that, right? How could a saint be united with a sinner? How could a Christian be united with a terrorist? How could the prey lie down with its predator? 
It took two miraculous acts of God, one towards Saul and one towards Ananias, just to get them in the same room together. Christ's message to Saul, verses 15 and 16, was you will be my chosen instrument to carry my name to the Gentiles and to kings and to the children of Israel. And you look at that, it's like, that's awesome, right? God's basically saying, guess what? I'm gonna make you famous. But he doesn't do it through health, wealth, and prosperity because in the very next verse, he says, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Sounds pleasant, right? Sign me up, all for it. The first three years of Saul's ministry as he carried the name of Christ before Gentiles and the governor, the king of Arabia, and the children of Israel resulted in many plots to kill him in verses 23 through 25. They were literally waiting at the gates day and night to kill him. Awesome, right? And yet he did have unity with the disciples that he had made by preaching the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And that unity actually compelled them to help him to escape by lowering him through an opening in the wall in a basket. Now, how glamorous is that? I mean, put that on your resume. I'm such a celebrity pastor that my church had to put me in a hamper and drop me out a window to help me to escape from being martyred. And yet, what a profound display of unity and hope and glory, but at what a cost. Saul, he then goes down to Jerusalem in verse 26. And just think about the humility that it would have taken. It would have been so easy for Saul to say, look, I've been given this call by Jesus to go and to preach, so I'm just going to go to the next place and go to the next place and go to the next place. I'm not going to go back there. Why did he go back there? Because reconciliation needed to be made He didn't just hop off to the next church, leaving issues unresolved. He went back to the people that he had persecuted, and he asked them for forgiveness. He went to the very people that supported him as he hunted down these Christians, and he told them that he was wrong. To preach the gospel to those who hate you and to those that you once hated Do you think that that was easy? Do you think that that was comfortable? Do you wonder why it took him three years to get there? It's not that he was so busy that he simply lost track of time. It was because it took an insane amount of courage and humility and joy in Jesus to get him to go and to face his shame and to reconcile with these people, both believer and unbeliever, for the unity of the gospel and for the glory of Christ. And when he gets there, right, he's confronted with this issue. He he deals with it. He gets it off his chest, and he thinks he's going to feel better. Like, I'm so, so glad that I did that. I'm so glad I finally came to you, and I sought to reconcile. I'm so glad I, I cleaned up this error. He's met with skepticism. Now, wait a minute. 
you gave approval at our brother Stephen's death. You, you chased us out of town. We had to give up everything and flee for our lives because you're going to throw us in prison. You're there, you're breathing threats and murder against us, and you chased us as far as Damascus with the authority to bind us and to bring us into jail. And so here, now that you, know, you, you, you claim to have had this great experience, to see the very vision of Jesus and hear his voice, and then you just disappear for three years, only to show up now that the tables are actually turned and you are being hunted down and you want, you want me to forgive you? Are you kidding me? You think that was easy? And they said, you scare us. We don't even think you're a Christian, right? They did not believe that he was a disciple. It says it right there. And had it not been for Barnabas, right? Barnabas, yeah, we love Barnabas, but let's think about Barnabas for a minute. Barnabas had taken this field and he sold it and he gave the proceeds and he laid it before the feet of the apostles so that the apostles could use it to care for this church that Barnabas deeply loved, right? And Barnabas cared for this church. He loved this church. He gave so much to this church and then Saul sweeps in and in a moment it's all gone. I mean, that's money he's not getting back. Those are people that he cared for that Saul threw into prison and chased out of town. That church is not coming back. And yet Barnabas pleads for Saul to the apostles. You think that that was easy? Do you think the church in Jerusalem was like, okay, well, Saul, you know, you clearly you had this spiritual experience you know, he, he heard the voice of Jesus, right? And, and occasionally does talk about Jesus, and so this has got to be true. You know, we're just going to accept him all willy-nilly. You know, just like, that's fine. Just come on in, right? As long as you claim to have had this experience. I mean, who are we to question the authenticity of your faith? Just, just come on in. Just, you're welcome here. Hey, you know, you want to preach on Sunday? Here's the pulpit. Here you go. You think they did that? Do you think that Saul's boldness to preach to the Hellenists whom he had approved in stoning Stephen came easy? Do you think that he didn't know after what had just happened in Damascus and the threats that were breathed against him that the same thing wouldn't happen here, that they wouldn't want to kill him too? Do you think that that brotherhood that we read about in verse 30 that sought to protect Saul from the threats of the Hellenists was effortless? You think that it didn't take quite a bit of convincing to get him to leave Jerusalem and to head to Caesarea and then on to Tarsus. And then just, just try to imagine being Saul at this point, right? You have been commissioned as a chosen instrument by Jesus himself to take the gospel to Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. 
And for three years, you have faithfully preached the gospel at the risk of your own life. You had to escape already. You have gone to such great lengths to pursue unity with Jesus' disciples there in Jerusalem. And you are passionate about Jesus only to hear, you know what, that's quite all right, Saul. We got this. Tell you what, you just go. Don't call us, we'll call you. And they sent him out to Tarsus where he sat for 10 years. You know what they did? They benched the apostle Paul. They sent him down to the miners for 10 years. That's where he was. Oh, and by the way, you might want to take up tent making while you're down there. Just get comfortable. We'll call you if we need you. And for 10 years, he sat there on the sidelines still ministering faithfully for the name of Christ, but not in any way that he had expected or hoped for. Not in the way that he thought that it was going to go. And yet we read in verse 31 that the church was getting along just fine without him. Now friends, If God did that in the Apostle Paul's lives or in the the lives of these, these disciples, do you think that he won't do something similar to you? Do you honestly think that your life is gonna go just the way that you expect it to? That all of your plans will just fall into place in your own timing and everything's gonna be great? And that he won't have all sorts of twists and turns and it will, his plan will be fulfilled just as he had promised but in ways that you totally didn't expect. You you see, it's so easy for us to just skim over these verses in just a few seconds and to see gospel unity and to think that it comes as quickly as you reading these words on this page. Just done. Yes, there is God-given gospel unity, all right, and this is a miraculous work of the Lord, but that doesn't mean that unity comes easy. Because I just covered a three-year period that was filled with surprise and disappointment, joy and frustration, boldness and fear, wisdom and confusion, gladness and sorrow, hope and unmet expectations, pleasure and pain, satisfaction and suffering, fighting and forgiveness. And through it all, God was at work and the church was growing, but that unity did not come easy. So how foolish for us to think it will in this body, or among other Christians. It's not going to be easy. But unity does come from the gospel. The gospel requires sacrifice. Unity requires sacrifice. Sin by nature is selfish disunity. We rebel against God. We rebel against God's people. We try to live our lives without any of them, as if this is my world and I'm God. I can do whatever I want to do, whenever I want to do it, however I want to do it, and that's just fine. The effect of this rebellion against God and his people is hatred, hostility, wars, fear, pride, selfishness, and animosity towards God and others. 
right? Disunity is the course of our sin. That's where our sin leads. Those natural inclinations that we have, that that course of our lives runs towards disunity. Yes, that comes easy. Yes, that comes natural. Yes, we shouldn't be surprised if we're tempted to do that very thing. And we have no ability in and of ourselves to change that nature. Only God can. And God did it through sacrifice. The reconciliation that we now have with God and with his people required the humiliating, painful, unfair death of our Lord Jesus on a cross. Our unity in Christ was costly. Our unity in Christ was painful. It was humiliating. It was unfair. It was slow, and it came in ways that we would not expect. But by his grace in Christ, we have now been reconciled to God and to each other. And guess what, everybody? That is unfair. And we have been united in Christ, because Christ put others first, put God first, put us before himself. I don't know if you remember when we looked at Ephesians chapter 2 a while back, but we learned, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That he has made us one, because he himself is our peace, and he has broken down this dividing wall of hostility in his flesh by abolishing laws and commandments that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus removed that. Through him, we now have access to the Father in one spirit. Through him, we now hold one faith in this one hope. Through him, we have now been joined together through one baptism into one body to live as fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Through our one Lord Jesus Christ, we are growing together, being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And because this is true, Saul, who's later renamed Paul, living as a prisoner at that time, would say to us, I therefore, Paul, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We have been freely given this unity in the gospel, and yet we must walk in a manner that is worthy of this call. A lifelong pursuit that requires humility and gentleness and patience and enduring love as we eagerly maintain this unity that we've been given in the Spirit as we've been united in the bond of peace, which is Christ himself. And friends, that's what we see the church doing right here in Acts chapter 9. They're living it out. And this is the same thing that is required for every single soul who is in Christ Jesus. It's not optional. That kind of unity requires that we fight against sin. 
We fight first against the sin in our own hearts, pulling the plank from our own eyes before we seek to take the speck out of our brother's. And we fight our common enemy, the church's common enemy, sin. We're not treating brother or sister as an enemy, but sin is our common enemy that we're fighting together. So we fight that. We, we guard the church against wolves who are our enemy, but not sheep. And that's the issue that the apostles in Jerusalem really had to deal with there in verses 26 through 30. Was Saul a wolf or was he a sheep? That question required careful discernment. Now again, you don't get all of the details of what that discernment looked like, but they didn't simply accept Saul on his profession of faith or his claim to spiritual experiences. Instead, they looked carefully at his life and his doctrine, which is what Paul calls us to over and over again. Was he obedient to Christ? Was he striving to obey all that Christ commanded? Not that he did so perfectly, but is that his pursuit? Is that his goal? Is he striving earnestly to do that? Was he faithful to the gospel? Was he preaching the one true faith, or was his doctrine false and confused? And if it was in error, was he humble, teachable, and able to be corrected? And friends, they could tell because Saul was clear and vocal in what he believed. He was articulating his doctrine so that they could gauge it, and they could test his life against it. Now, a lot of people will tell you, okay, the way to get unity is to go light on doctrine. And if we just minimize doctrine and say that stuff doesn't really matter, then we can open the door wide and we can be more unified. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. Unity comes through clear and careful theology, not the absence of it. And our proclamation of the gospel should clarify what we believe. I mean, it certainly did with the church there in Acts. And that's what we're trying to do here. That's why we have foundations courses. That's why I preach as long as I do. Not to try to put you all to sleep, but because I'm trying to guard the life and doctrine of this church. Because I'm trying to care for your souls, and I can't do that in 20 minutes or 30 minutes. That's why we do sermon application when we gather in community groups. And we want the Word to be at the center of our life transformation groups and everything else that we do. We want to guard our life and our doctrine. They wanted to know whether or not he was a true disciple. Was he truly willing to deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow Jesus? And through his preaching, through the way that he lived, through his humble desire to reconcile with the church in Jerusalem and to preach to those whom he had once led astray, the apostles could clearly discern that he was a true disciple. And so they accepted him. But it took time. But friends, let us not dare to reject one whom the Lord has accepted, nor accept one whom the Lord rejects. And so this unity that we have in the gospel is displayed, it's discerned, it's declared by our lives and our doctrine, which is made most visible 
by our submission to the church. Again, Saul had been commissioned by Jesus Christ himself. He had boldly and faithfully preached the gospel at the risk of his own life. He had faithfully made disciples. He had gone humbly to Jerusalem to reconcile with the church there and to correct his former way of life, both before Jews and Hellenists. And yet we see him continuing to faithfully serve Christ and to submit to the church, even when they sent him off to Tarsus. He trusted his brothers and was faithful for 10 years as he waited for Christ's commission to him to be confirmed by Christ's body. Your readiness for the ministry does not come fast, it comes slow. Over time, through the confirmation of the church. And yet the church grew while he submitted himself to faithfully serving on the sidelines. And friends, can I just say that as a pastor, there is no greater confirmation of true discipleship than to see a brother or sister humbly, faithfully, patiently, intentionally, and joyfully serving the church seeking to make disciples, proclaiming Jesus without pushing their own agendas or desires, without demanding positions or titles, without seeking the glory of men or the approval of elders, but simply loving Christ and his body. And I do want to say that there are a number of you that I would, I'm so tempted to name drop right now. And I'm so thankful. I'm not just to guard against pride in comparison. But I do want you to know that I see you. And I'm so thankful for you. But friends, that means nothing compared to Christ's words. Who will say to us on that day, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. My friends, if you are in Christ, you have been united both to Christ and to his body. Maintaining that unity might not come easy, but through it, we enter into the joy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's far better. His mission is fulfilled as evidence of gospel fruit is displayed in our unity, in our lives, and in our doctrine and in our submission to his church as we do so for his glory, for the good of others, and for our joy in him. So friends, let's pursue that together in this body. And so the mission of Christ is fulfilled as the gospel bears fruit in our lives. And we see that displayed in unity. And second, or fourth, if you're kind of keeping this with last week. The mission of Christ is fulfilled as the gospel bears fruit of true gospel growth in our lives. Now, I had to add that word, true gospel growth, because often we get this confused. Verse 31 serves as another one of Luke's summary statements that he provides throughout the book of Acts. 
Luke loves these summary statements. He provides them often to transition the story along. And so before Luke transitions away from Saul as he's out there in Tarsus and back to the apostle Peter's ministry in Judea as a door is open to the Gentiles, he wraps things up by saying, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So Christ's mission that he had given his apostles back in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, the thesis statement for the entire book of Acts, that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth is now being fulfilled through their witness in the power of the Holy Spirit. The church Again, the church, not the individual self-defining Christian, but the church has spread throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, and he's preparing us for what comes next, the ends of the earth. As a door is opened in Acts chapter 10 with the conversion of the Gentile Cornelius and the beginning of the Gentile church in Antioch in Acts chapter 11, a mission that is embarked upon by Paul and Barnabas As they set out from Antioch in Acts 13, the mission of Christ is being fulfilled as the gospel bears fruit in our lives. Gospel proclamation leads to gospel enemies, gospel unity, and gospel growth. But friends, notice here, notice here that gospel growth is not measured in all of the things that so often we think identify and and articulates and communicates gospel growth. It says nothing about attendance, how big your church is, or how much money it brings in every year. It doesn't tell you about the quality of the facility and how pristine and pretty it is and how we just want to just stand in awe there. I mean, we've got a great building, but obviously it's a work in progress, right? It's not seen in engaging programs for all ages and all interest levels, It's not in the style, the excellence, or experience of their music and how you feel about it, or in their short and inspiring sermons that are no longer than 20 minutes. Again, we want to measure growth in terms of minutes rather than decades. So often, these are the standards that we use to determine whether we're growing or not. That may be America's way, but that is not Christ's way. No, I'm thankful for this verse, verse 31. I mean, even this week, it has been helpful to me to consider what is true gospel growth? What is it supposed to look like? How do you begin to gauge whether or not you as an individual, you as a body are growing? Well, here it is, right for us. I mean, it's laid out in in five easy steps, right? I'm just kidding. We see, first of all, that the church had peace. Not a peaceful, easy feeling. I'm just so happy and peaceful. Just the absence of conflict, it doesn't mean that either. But even in the midst of these gospel enemies, as the church was being persecuted, they had peace. Peace with God and peace with one another in the church. 
They were reconciling, they were forgiving, they were extending grace as they partnered in the gospel together. Again, it doesn't mean the absence of conflict, but what it does mean is is conflict resolution, that they were seeking to be peacemakers. Peace that is expressed in unity, in love, in truth, in faithfulness, and in joy and hope in Christ as they continued to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. As they continued to not only proclaim, but also to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, both to those within the church and to those outside the church. Gospel growth could be seen in how the church was being built up. The church was being encouraged and edified toward maturity in Christ. The goal is not just a number of decisions for Christ or a number of baptisms or how many people made confirmations of faith in some way, but but the measure was Christ himself and how they are growing and being built up towards him. And I find it interesting that this participle here is passive. It's not that they built themselves up. Like, okay, this is what I got to do to build myself up and this is what I got to do to build you up. But that God was the one at work building them up. That God was working sovereignly through what the church was doing as the church was involved and committed to discipling one another, that the church was built up together. And so what that means, guys, is that that. This growth, this edification that you're hoping for, it's not an individual pursuit. It can only come through the body. You can't go it alone. This process of being built up towards maturity in Christ is not independent, self-defined study. It is the work of God through the members of the church acting for the discipleship of others so that the whole church together is being built up in love. Ephesians 4, right? That we grow in faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ as God joins us together, as he knits us together. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This can't happen as you're trying to go it alone outside the church. And if you're trying to do that, can I just say to you, you are only hurting yourself and others. Another measure of gospel growth is that the church was walking in the fear of the Lord. They had this deep reverence for God, and they were striving diligently to live holy and devout lives together for the glory of God and for their joy in Him. They weren't devoting themselves to foolish, futile, or sinful worldly pursuits, but instead they longed to put Christ first in every area of their lives. They measured gospel growth by walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Now our children's catechism asked the question, how do you know that you are God's child? Well, the Holy Spirit assures me and enables me to love God and other people. By God's grace, when we repent of our sin and we place our trust in Christ to follow our resurrected Lord Jesus from there on after, not only are we granted forgiveness, but we also receive the Holy Spirit. You're not doing it alone. The Holy Spirit comforts us in our weaknesses. He strengthens us in the midst of trial, temptations, and affliction. 
He grants us wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. He convicts us of sin and leads us in righteousness. He intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our glorious inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of God's glory. The Holy Spirit strengthens us to walk in obedience to the call of Christ. It is the Holy Spirit that pours out the Father's love in our hearts so that our joy and our hope and our glory are in Christ. In these ways and in so many other ways, all who have received the Holy Spirit find comfort to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. The question becomes, can you see evidence of the comfort of the Holy Spirit in your soul and this church? And the final measure of genuine gospel growth is multiplication. The word of God increased and was multiplied as the gospel was being proclaimed. Disciples were being made. True enemies of Christ were revealing the true nature of their hearts and how they hated the gospel. Leaders were being developed. Churches were being planted. The mission of Christ was being expanded into new territories. And the results And as a result, the church was being multiplied, not through branding, not through man-made models or strategies for attractional growth, but through earnest-to-goodness discipleship. As Christ and his church actively pursued the mission of Christ, the gospel went forward. It went out, increasing in number of the disciples and increasing in the maturity of those disciples. Right? It's not just one direction. It's both. It is deep and it is wide. Both are necessary. If the church turns inward, it becomes sick and dies. But if by the grace of God, in obedience to the command of Christ, the church actively seeks to multiply disciples from every nation, it will be numeric, it will be global, it will involve church planting, and it will lead to maturity in Christ. And that's what we pursue. The only way a healthy church will ever shrink is either by persecution or active mission. That its members are scattered for the purpose of proclaiming the word of God to the ends of the earth. In which case, verse 31 still is true of them. Now again, we look at this. This is again passive. It was multiplied. So God's doing this work and it's growing. And we read through Acts and we read through it so quickly. We're just like, man, this happened so fast. I wish this was true for me. I wish this was true for us. I wish this was true here in this church and throughout our world to see this kind of explosive growth. But guys, it didn't happen immediately there either. You see, yes, there was explosive Holy Spirit-empowered growth in chapters two through four. Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people coming to Christ very quickly. But then... Beginning in chapter 5, there was the discipline issue with Ananias and Sapphira. The apostles were then arrested and beaten and released, and we don't know how long they were in jail necessarily. There was a conflict about the daily distribution within the church that had to be resolved that resulted in the appointing of deacons. Then after that, Stephen was martyred. 
And there was a great persecution that arose among the church that scattered them throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria. Drove them out. Saul's conversion took place anywhere from one to three years after Stephen's martyrdom. Okay? Keep that time time span in mind, one to three years later. And then it was another three years before what we see happening in verse 31 took place. Right? That's three years later. Though the church was growing and disciples were being made, the word of God increased and multiplied. It was not this miraculous explosive growth that we read about in chapters 2 through 4. It was increasingly becoming slower, faithful, intentional, patient, plotting as the church proclaimed and pursued unity in the face of persecution that led to this true gospel growth that we read about in verse 31. Friends, it wasn't fast, it was slow. It wasn't quick and easy, it was slow and painful. And yet through it all, Christ was faithful to build up and Christ was faithful to multiply his church. I needed to read that this week. So friends, this is the mission that we've been given. And this is how the gospel bears fruit in our lives. Through gospel proclamation, through gospel enemies, through gospel unity, and through gospel growth. As we, Redeemer Church, have peace and are being built up, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, being multiplied as we devote ourselves to the call of discipleship that makes many and maturing disciples according to the grace and strength that God supplies. So let us pray the mission of Christ will be fulfilled among us as this gospel bears fruit in our lives. Let's pray.